Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guests are the indie rock band Sunflower Bean. Julia Cummings, alongside guitar player Nick Kevlin, were missing Olive Faber, the drummer, but the New York trio Sunflower Bean is on the heels of their third album, which is called A Head Full of Sugar. It was just released May 16th. The band has been on tour the last few years. I'm excited to get into it with them and chop it up. Julia has been a longtime uh, friend of the show, alumni of the show, along with the band. We've been working together for quite some time, and she's great. The band is having a lot of success. Excited to welcome here to the show in just a moment, Sunflower Bean. This is Lips LA. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm joined today with the members of Sunflower Bean, Julie Cumming, Nick Kevlin. How are you? Hey, Great. How are really you? Good. How are Great you? to see you both. You guys are alumni. Second time on the show. We're missing Olive Faber. We are. We are. Maybe you should get jackets, like SNL, like for the recurring That could be people, good. People like that eventually. come back to the yeah. show. I love that. <laughs> I would like to get to three, at least. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Truth is, you've been on the show before, and Julie, we work together. And uh-huh. as for those of you that don't know, that have not been following anything about my life, I also, on the side, my other day job, I have an agency for many, many, many years representing talent. Julie is an incredible talent. Obviously, we're going to get into the new record, the tour coming up. You're actually leaving, I think, tonight for the tour, right? Or tomorrow morning? Very, very early tomorrow morning. So kind of kind of like late tonight. But Awesome. Yeah. Well, the third record we have to get into, Head Full of Sugar and the tour. Mm-hmm. So and we're going to get into your history, too. There's so much to go over. You both look great. I was saying how you, <laughs> you have like a new look since last time I saw you. It's been two years. Like, And during the pandemic, God knows, like, you know, every, we were all doing different things. We were yeah. growing our hair out. I'm growing mine. You're growing yours. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> it's a whole thing. So it's great to see you both. It's great to do this in person. Obviously, have you been, I mean, I know the new record was made during the pandemic and, and you know, it's funny because it's quite an optimistic record mm-hmm. and it's a, a feel good record. I was sort of like, I wouldn't I was riding my bike today listening to it. So I wouldn't say I was dancing, but mm-hmm. it is a record you could dance to if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was a big, that was a big part of it. I mean, I think a lot of the genres that we were like, referencing or playing with on the record were like definitely meant to be experienced live and when we were writing we were sort of yearning to be in the world like you know one of the songs post love is really inspired by like a lot of the DJing that I was doing in the city before the pandemic started I had like a kind of um, semi-infamous club night it was very raunchy where was that uh, at this at that place Berlin oh, on sure. Avenue A sure. Um, 
You know, I think to it fondly, but I also <laughs> glad it's not happening anymore. Maybe the pandemic. That's one good thing. The one pandemic good thing. Ended. The pandemic ended, <laughs> ended my, your DJ ended sets. My, ended my DJ sets. <laughs> right. But I really loved. I really loved it, and I loved. Um, you know, being there and that made me want to write a Sunflower Bean song that I felt like you could experience in that in that place. And um, and like a song like Stand By Me is really inspired by like festival, yeah. like big festival sound, like meant to be heard. Like I was imagining like the main stage at Glastonbury, just like loud. Um, and you played amazing festivals, by yeah. the way. So you played all these places, Lollapalooza, yeah. Glastonbury. I think, I think since last time I saw you, which was like I said a few years ago, you've gone on to do festivals. This is your third record. So, mm -hmm. and I want to get into your history, and I don't want to jump around too much. But the festival life—do you miss it? Are you doing some more? There's some festivals coming up that you can announce here. I think there's some. We, uh, I think that we're going to do a lot of like fall festivals. A lot of the festivals that are happening now are still honoring like their old contracts from records that came out during the pandemic. And you know, I think a lot of the industry is scrambling, but. I never went to music festivals as a fan. I've since I've been playing music for so long. I think the years that I would have been going to festivals, I was just like playing them yeah. or like thinking about playing them. So I've never been to a festival for fun. So I think I think of them just as work. It's interesting when I was doing a deep dive, Julia. What I, I didn't realize because I know we had you on the show before, but you were like actually like hawking merch at like eleven years old in yeah. nightclubs, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. such a strange concept. Like, did you you obviously didn't have a fake ID. No. I don't even really understand how this was. How, how did they let like an 11 year old run around selling t-shirts to, I don't know what band you were selling merch yeah, for. It's, was it's, it the band you ended up joining? Or sort of. It was like, you know, um, my dad is a, loves to play bass and he would, um, he, he didn't, he wasn't a bass player for his job, but he would go around the East village cause that's where we lived and where I grew up. And he would like find songwriters that he really liked. And if they needed a bass player, he would sort of like offer himself up. And one of those people that he liked were this family band, the Trachtenberg family slideshow players, um, who were like a vaudeville group from Seattle. And they had a daughter in their band. They were a family band. And she was nine and I was seven. That's my friend, Rachel Trachtenberg, who's also done a lot in fashion. And um, you probably know her. Um and they needed a friend for her to go on tour with because she was kind of alone a lot. And I was younger than her. And my dad obviously was a huge fan of music. And he kind of wanted me to be exposed to that kind of artier world, you know. But I think for me, what it made me like the way that it affected my life is that like when I thought about artists I didn't think of them as like people that make stuff that you see in a museum. You know, I thought of them as like the, my friends, even though they were adults and maybe that was weird. But, you know, a lot of people I met just played open mics consistently. You know, we all wrote songs all the time and, and played them at open mics. And just like the, the scene was really strong. And that was kind of why I was there. You know, I did I did tours with them, too be a friend to Rachel but also it, it it definitely taught me a lot about the hustle you know I would go up to people and sell them stuff and make them uncomfortable and I loved being <laughs> there with them and having the CDs and like it's almost like they had to buy it because you were 11 yeah you know? and I loved it I loved I loved learning about <laughs> you know I loved being at shows and I kind of you know that I was in the fifth grade yeah. so I I could never really go back and that's that's what's funny like I don't I don't come from 
you know, so many, there's like, I feel like that term industry plant is so big yeah. and people always want to look at people that have even the smallest amount of things and like point stuff. And it's like, I feel like the place that I came from was just a really earnest street musician, street yeah. musician. I used to busk a lot. My dad used to busk a lot. You <laughs> You're know, the daughter like, of a busker. <laughs> the first, I'm a, yeah. The first time I went to South, South by Southwest, I was 13 years old. I was busking, Incredible. you know? So every time I play South by now, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take it back even before that, because it's it's funny, like a lot of people at a very young age think, all right, I don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor. Mm -hmm. Some people when I was younger, like I want to be an astronaut, which is not that realistic for most people. But at four, mm -hmm. you were like, I want to be in a band. Yeah. And Nick, I don't know what age you decided. I mean, maybe you were three at three years old. <laughs> because I, I didn't know I wanted to be in a band until I was probably like 13. I started playing drums at eight. But that's fairly young to kind of know what you want to do with your life. I imagine it wasn't modeling too, because we'll get into, again, your career path too. But at four, you really decided, I'm going to be in a band. And Nick, what, what age were you when you decided music was I your was calling? I was probably seven or eight when I first developed my love for music. And I was called to it in a way that was sort of beyond just the actual music. It was more just like seeing what the musicians looked like and seeing like being interested in like you know the lifestyles and like all this like culture that was like around the music too it was like something drawing me to it that ju it just seems like this other world where things were mysterious and like when you listen to a Ramones album when you're eight or nine you don't really know what they're talking about in the yeah. lyrics it's and you know, they're, I still don't know what they're talking about, really. No, no one does. I don't think Joey Ramone knew what they yeah. were talking about. <laughs> and also, I grew up in Long Island, and it's like, you know, they reference, like, Queens and stuff, and it was just, like, this place, like, just, like, you know, 10 miles down the road where I was like, is it just, like, a whole other world where people are, like, living in, like, this other way that, like, my parents don't don't know about? <laughs> right. Well, I think Rockaway Beach, I knew what it meant, because I was like, that's just a beach that's somewhere near where I grew up. But uh, but funny enough, I mean, it's you, your influences run the gamut. I mean, Julia, it's like there's references to the Beach Boys and Pet mm -hmm. Sounds, maybe even on your last record. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, and, and just hearing some, like Harvest Moon, I was listening to the, today, uh -huh. the cover you did, uh, the Neil Young cover. And it, for me, it brought me back to, again, Pet Sounds and, and the influences there. Yeah. But you're right, you know, the influences range from Devo, literally, to like you know, the Beach Boys. And Nick, I don't know what you were listening to too. And, and uh, it feels like, did you share some common interests musically when you first met? When yeah. we first met, yeah. And definitely. we, and we, I mean, we met in, I think, at kind of the height into the end of like the New York DIY scene, which was like 285 Kent, Death by Audio, kind of that whole block in Williamsburg, mm. which is now the Vice Building um, that we used to just haunt you know and that's how we you just hung outside until yeah i mean hung out as long as it, you know usually we could get in some places we couldn't get in but we would just sort of you know be at these places playing shows and um we were we loved a lot of the bands in the scene and you know i think when i think about all of our references like like combined and separately it really especially how i understand it on this record is like we were the first kids of the ipod generation mm -hmm. you know i remember even being at a studio with rachel and her having it in her hand and being you know 10 years old and kind of that psychological shift from records to singles and so for us when it came to like being a band that made stuff we always wanted to be different than everyone else and we wanted to um 
kind of be free with the with our taste, you know, and I think that sometimes people didn't understand that. But for us, it was very natural. And I think it's something that Gen Z actually does really, really well, which I think you see on TikTok and all these places, you know, they can borrow parts of culture without any morality or having to place it, you mm. know, it's like post culture, you know, it's, it's um, really free. And I think that was something we wanted to do with this record is, yes, we may, may have had these phases, but we wanted to truly define it in our own box. And I think it's cool that like on this record, we haven't gotten any reviews comparing us to anyone else for the first time, which is kind of my goal, you know? I love it. It's yeah. like psychedelic. It's dance oriented. There's hints of, for me, like MGMT. I was mm -hmm. remembering that early period of 2000s and a lot of that sort of dancey psychedelic rock that was happening and yeah. but, but even before that you know i just want to take it a step back for a moment your parents actually met in a band they did and yeah. uh and then i want to talk about how you both met and i know we discussed this a long time mm -hmm. ago but talk about that a little bit because you grew up around music it was sort of this anti-folk scene which i wasn't yeah. really aware that there was yeah. i know the folk scene i didn't know there was an anti-folk scene adam green and i guess all yeah. these kind of indie folk artists in new york adam green kimya early regina specter um latch he was a big part of it and he ended up moving to Scotland. Um, the anti-folk scene came out of um, sort of a rebellion against the folk open mics, mm. you know, because for a lot of these folk open mics, you had to play folk or you weren't allowed to do it. So anti-folk became kind of the generalized term for um, people who were writing whatever they wanted to write um, or do whatever they wanted to do. So it was mostly based around sidewalk, um, the sidewalk cafe. And, busking, like you said. Yeah, busking. And they had this longstanding kind of legendary open mic that it would go until six in the morning. And if you, if you got a bad number like that and you stayed the whole night, they would uh, make tea for everybody and keep the lights down. And it was a really beautiful thing because you didn't have to do anything to get into that scene besides being there you didn't have to look like anything you didn't have to have anything you just had to sh continuously show up and me and rachel would go there we would write a song a week so that we could play it at the open mic and hear how it went over and because the guy who ran it ben knew that we were kids and he knew that i had school this is 11 and 13 this is yeah yeah well this is he would he how did would, you get into these nightclubs at that age that's it really was mine. a different time for new york he would you would pick a number out of two he would have numbers in hands and you would pick a number and he would open it up but no matter what number we got he would be like all right three you know so that i could play the song and then get home and go to school it's interesting the open mic scene i just had wesley on from the lumineers and they kind of started in the open mic scene i didn't yeah. know this was a a movement where artists were actually starting i mean i guess if you take it back to dylan maybe that started in yeah. like an open that's mic what scene, but... um the sidewalk scene like reminds me of like cafe wa and right like sure. tiny tim and like all those people that dylan talks about in his book chronicles yeah if you've ever read it sure sure i wasn't there but that's just like what i imagine it to be when julia tells me stories about like all the different people who would perform there so many and, like characters. it was a lot of almost like comedy like they'd have like their bits and like the different things that they would do yeah there was i mean and that was the best part about it and i think that is you know obviously open mics can be really cringy and there's a range of things that can happen but i think people don't realize you know if you don't have a way to get a show 
and you don't have a way to make friends. Like that is a live place where you can go and do that where everybody's trying. And I remember when I started doing solo music after that first band and I I played a couple songs at the open mic and I like the the guy running it said, hey, have we given you your own show yet? Do you want to play a show? <laughs> and like, you know, it was just to 20 people in that room. And I think like my heart like exploded, you know, like of the sheer like um, pride that I was going to get my own show at Sidewalk <laughs> so <laughs> after it, all that time. Well, it's a lot about when we were talking about it when we just sat down. It's a lot about paying your dues. and You've definitely yeah. paid your dues. So yeah. starting from playing in, in you know, open mics at 11 mm -hmm. to now your third record along the way you obviously met and and i love the story about how when you met you were like i just knew i was going to be in this band that was I it did. i met nick i think it was outside <laughs> a place called alaska maybe yeah it was outside of a place called alaska it's so funny because julia always tells this story wrong they let us in well <laughs> don't think that we I, weren't I'm allowed in. i'm trying to look out for we us just hadn't gone inside yet because we were we were like we were like 17 and you know i know our you know I we could say that because the bar's been closed for like five or six years the bar's now, been but. closed i mean the bar <laughs> I don't know how to, I loved this bar. It was pitch black. They used to have like, they used to have picture frames of nothing, which always made me laugh. I was like, you can't even find something to put in the fucking picture frame. It was so indie. They had was, pictures of nothing. Yeah, they had pictures of nothing. Time, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was my first time like hanging out with Nick, but I knew him from some We had bands. met before and um, we had never like spent a night talking and hanging out. Yeah. And I was actually, my high school band was supposed to play at this place called Living Bread, which was a deli that An did actual deli. It was a, yeah, it was a bodega that did shows and it got shut down by the cops right before we were supposed to play. <laughs> it certainly so, didn't hold that many people, I would imagine. I think it probably <laughs> held it about 60 to 70. Oh, that, that's a lot, actually, Yeah, I mean, they deli. would just push everything to the... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did you play between the Wonder Bread and the Pinto Beans? I don't even... It's just right in the main room. I don't know. There were no... There wasn't, like, the standard, like, rows of aisles, it but... cleaned out all the groceries. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Cool, and then it got shut down and... Everyone who was at the show just went to Alaska because it was down the street and me and Julia were standing outside and I was just about to start. I was trying to put together a band where I would play guitar because I was the bass player in my high school band. Mm. And yeah, it was just it was just a feeling, you know, like I think when when me and Nick and Olive met, all of us had something a lot to prove. You know, I had really tried with Super Cute, but, um, you know, there were so many things that didn't work with that. And I was just, you know, I was sort of trying to follow this feeling in my life that it was what I was supposed to be doing, but I didn't really know the direction. And when Nick was like, yeah, I'm starting Sunflower Bean, it was like kind of that feeling where I'm like, oh, this guy's going to ruin my life. <laughs> You'll but be I along just, for the ride But for I just years. knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen and I did it. <laughs> because the, the band you were in previously, Super Cute, was sort of a Sid Barrett type of referenced uh, yeah. you know, band, I guess, right? In the way you were into that kind of music and Elliot Smith and mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of influences like that, right? Yeah. And it's, and, and it's weird because you were young. So to yeah. think about like Sid Barrett and Elliot Smith, again, it, I, I want to say 13, 14, mm -hmm. 15, like you don't usually think of, you know, it's a fairly young age to be into that heavier kind of music, right? Yeah, we were in our, we were definitely in our own space, you know, like um, we were... Like, because Rachel was in the Trachtenberg family slideshow players, which was essentially a traveling art project where the family would buy slides and write songs about the slides, you know, everything that we did was, it was, it, I almost think of that band more like an art project. Mm. And it taught me a lot about commitment to the idea 
and to um, not, yeah, not be really afraid of that and kind of that the commitment is cooler than than almost anything else about it because a lot of people will never commit to anything. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And to stand there and be like, this is what we're doing. We're writing songs about what's important to us, which is like what's happening in our lives. We had a vow not to write any songs about boys. Um, and we did a lot of weird stuff. We used to do a lot of um, like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd covers in like really strange ways. We did like, you know, instead of cowbell, we would hit the pot and pan Perfect. and like, and we ended up doing a lot actually in the New York comedy circuit. I think people just didn't really know what to make of us. And we really, we really liked that. But I, I, I really wanted to be in a band as well that, um, you know, I didn't have to, it w- didn't have to be so much of a conceptual thing. Yeah, you know? so you meet Nick at what age? 17, 18? Yeah, 17, I think. Yeah, I was yeah. 18. It was my last year of, I was entering my last year of high school. I was going, I went to a professional performing arts school, um, which is like a public performing arts school for kids who are already performing. So, um, and I got to study singing there. And I was thinking about um, trying to go to conservatory and maybe do the classical route. Um, but I also very much knew that that probably was not going to work even though I really I really liked it I just was like oh I want to write music I don't know if I'm the right person to for that route um, that that's going to make me happy and then on top of that I got scouted by YSL yeah I was going to ask you that so you beat me to it but yeah Eddie Slamane finds you. You mm-hmm. end up doing the campaign yep. as a musician. Yeah. It's great to see the fashion community also recognize the fact that you have this great band too, which, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like people want a story now. It's not about just being, you know, pretty or beautiful. I mean, it's really about what's your story? What do you stand for? Do you have, you know, something to say? Is there, and, and you've obviously used your voice in numerous ways in your platform. And yeah. I want to talk about that too. So I guess. Along the way now, I think it's great that, you, let, you know, you work with so many great people, Stephen Mizell, Pat McGrath, mm-hmm. YSL was great for you mm-hmm. early on. So I guess what does fashion mean to you now, now that the band is three records in, you know, you've had success, you played festivals, yeah. you know, you've had top 50 records in the UK, mm-hmm. you work with the Manic Street Preachers. Mm-hmm. This is sort of your bio, I yeah. guess, right? Yeah, now. yeah, <laughs> But what does fashion mean to you now that you've, now that you've done both, you know, side by side? Yeah, well, you know, I think... It's interesting, like, before the pandemic, we did our show with Bernie Sanders and the Strokes in New Hampshire, which was, like, a real high point in our career. It was right after we did Govball, which was definitely one of my favorite festival sets ever. And um, and we had just finished the Beck tour. We were just coming off of a lot of really cool stuff, and then the pandemic happened, and we were sort of forced to put everything on hold and just write and not really talk to the world about it because, um, you know, it was like when you come back after this, you know, um, it'll be bigger. And now that we've kind of come back, I feel like we're, we're looked at more in this light, right. Where it's like, you've done so much. It's, it's almost like we're placed in this different, like where we fit into the 2010s is different because before all of this, you know, in my life, we were just moving full steam ahead it wasn't like we weren't really looking we weren't really looking at it like a past thing it was just 
our, our lives. Constantly touring. I think, Nick, yeah. you didn't even have an apartment until not long yeah, ago, right? Not until the pandemic. <laughs> right. so, <laughs> so, yeah. So now in this moment, I do have more time to kind of reflect on all of it. And I mean, I feel really lucky. I've I've always loved style in the way in only in bands i had no when i was a kid i i didn't give a shit about clothes my mom took me to kmart two times a year and you know and to the fucking men's barber shop because i didn't want to brush my hair so i had a i spent my whole kid life with a little boy haircut and you know my little kmart clothes and just be a little nerd um but but fashion only came into my life through music um and i really love the way that you know, bands, bands are a fantasy. Music is a fantasy. And there's a lot about, there's a lot in what you don't say that's more important almost than what you say. And clothes and your, your, how you look is your first step into that room. It's the, it's the beginning of the story that you're trying to tell. So it's super important. And I'm really grateful to the brands and designers that have seen that with me and wanted to tell those stories with me and when you get discovered at like 17 and you end up doing YSL I mean that's got to change your life too right I mean that was yeah. something that like you literally like you said you were in school mm-hmm. you were in, on the road playing music but you hadn't had success at that point yeah. really so, and he loves to discuss you know he loves yeah. to discover people <laughs> when they haven't really done much yeah so that must have been such an incredible thing for you at that point too it was I think a lot of times I thought that um, someone was going to like pull the curtain out right. <laughs> and, and everyone this is not real. Yeah. A, a lot of it was very, was very surreal for sure. Um, you know, my parents were not in fashion. Um, I never thought that something like that was going to happen, but I did see Rachel had done some modeling in the city and we had done photo shoots in our, in that first band. So I kind of had like an understanding that modeling could be a way for me to, do music and so I you know I I pursued it I tried to get you know I did I did work for it it definitely wasn't you know it definitely wasn't until YSL that things really happened um I think Nick can do a YSL ad now too because he's got that look too right? <laughs> they flew Nick out too but he <laughs> got really? yeah, yeah I got cut from the show the night oh. of <laughs> well now I think you're ready for your YSL yeah. campaign I always thought Julie that you were actually born in almost like the wrong decade because you're you were always like an old soul to me and, and your music initially for me it reminded me of like Fleetwood Mac and mm-hmm. there's I, I you know I love some of the, the first record we were talked about it when we first chatted and uh yeah I mean you ever feel like you were born in the wrong decade especially now with this TikTok generation everything's 15 seconds and it leads me to the discussion about your new record because yeah. I, I feel like that's sort of part of the idea of the new record you know living through this pandemic yeah I mean I think I think you get what you get and if you if you think too much about what you've missed it's almost like an excuse for not making the most of what you have um which I do think we do have like so many even in the social media era which is like can be deeply annoying you do have such a a different access to people you know that isn't gate kept through the the uh you know record companies necessarily and i think that a lot of that is good i do think it's the hardest time ever to be like a musician whose only goal isn't like going viral but i think we're in a transition period in general i think everyone knows that and i think 
be the job of being a musician or being an artist is adapting and looking yeah. at the situation you're in. And if you don't, you know, anyone in the arts, it's it, you can leave any time and no one will give a shit. You yeah, know what I mean? True. And, the, and o- the only people that make it are the ones that, that want to be here the most. I mean, you can still listen to all the music that was made in those decades <laughs> before true. now. So yeah. I'm not sure. It's like a whole it's like it's probably like a six hour conversation about how things have changed. Yeah. Just I think that the way our album and the way our um, career and what we had to do to promote a record in 2018 was probably closer to the way it was in 1964 than the way it is now in 2022. Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, if you look at uh, this generation, everyone consumes music in 15-second snippets. And when you write a record, I love vinyl. I love putting on a record and letting it play from start to finish. But I don't think music was intended to be consumed in 50-second, you know, 15-second snippets. I mean, it's just just the, the format... And drives the media. So now yeah. the format is 15 to 30 seconds. So we might make an album that's just choruses. <laughs> and I like great, listening to music like that. So <laughs> yeah. it might be fun to make songs that are just, you know, 30 second clips. That would be great. Just choruses. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you heard it here, folks. Just choruses. The next record is only choruses. Not the next one, but maybe <laughs> in the future. I do think I do think that it is what does kind of get me is that on TikTok or within those 15 seconds or 30 seconds is you need a punchline. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like comedy has kind of become everything. And comedy's I love comedy. But I do think that when it is like the only tool that is that is used to make music easier to sell, I do think that it, comedy isn't the best way to... Um, express a lot of things that are expressed in music all the time. So I do think that's risky, you know, that everything has to be written like, a, like you know, copy for an ad. I know? agree. I mean, well, so 2020, take me back to around March. I know you were probably getting off the road because you were doing like 150 shows a year before that. So you finally had some downtime and you finally have what turned out to be a couple of years now to make this record. Yeah. Head Full of Sugar is about the joyful aspects of life. It's funny because it's almost the opposite of what we just went through. And if you look at what's going on in the world today, it, it's not, you know, I want to be optimistic because I'm an eternal optimist, but it's mm-hmm. not the most uh, enticing period of life I've ever been through. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty uh, dark in some respects, but you come out and make this record that's fun it's almost a dance psychedelic record. So now that the record's been out, you've had some time. I mean, it's only been out, let's say, a month or so. I think yeah, it came out May sixth, right? Yeah. Um, what was the idea behind the record in terms of like the, the real joyful aspect, head full of sugar, and everything sort of being fun and uplifting, considering what we've just been through? Yeah, um, when we were making it, I think we were we were all living together at this house, and it was a very insular little. Um, squad of people that we had there and the recording process since we were doing it at home was almost like this like really low budget less amazing like exile on main street thing where the (laughs) the living room was the control room with like the mixing desk and the monitor and the tracking room was the dining room so we took the dining room table out of the dining room and set up a drum kit with all these baffles and just like tried to get things as Sounding as good as possible. In this the is in an room. apartment, by the way. No, this isn't. This isn't a, this is a small house. Ah, okay. Okay. And then we turned the bathroom into the vocal booth, and we just kind of worked on things at like a really like leisurely, fun pace. Like we would like grill and have like tiny parties in the house we were living in, and just sort of trying to like 
cultivate this feeling of being out of the pandemic and thinking about the world when it was open and when you could go anywhere and meet new people and do things. And a lot of the inspiration was this sort of imagining like that time coming back. We didn't want to go insular. We didn't want to make something that was rot or a, a, a draining, like sort of like closed in, like folky or small sounding album. We were imagining the world open as sort of a lifeline to hoping that we could be there again someday. It's interesting because I was going to say your first record was probably the three of you just jamming, you know, in a rehearsal studio. The second record, 22 and Blue, was quite ambitious. You had strings, you know, orchestration. And this record feels like probably a lot less pressure because you could just take your time when you're recording at home initially. And I know you finished some of it at like Electric Ladyland and some other studios. Yes, but. yeah. So we, we recorded for like about a year and a half. We wrote like so many songs. We would write a song like one a week and not only would it be written but we would record it and produce it pretty much to completion and then we would send it to our producer jp and he basically just went like he would get it and he'd be like oh that's cool like you should keep working on this like i might do something on this like i might add string like synths or whatever and if he didn't like something we would just put it on a soundcloud and move on yeah it was just kind of this like sort of keep going experience um as long as we could. And I think we did have this feeling you, you were kind of touching on it where I think we thought a lot of the records coming out of this time were going to be very kind of negative mm. because people would have had people were spending all this time like stewing with their emotions, which were kind of dark. And uh, for us as well. And our interpretation of that was, yeah, to kind of go in the opposite direction and make something that people would want to enjoy and make something that people would want to play again and it's interesting i've been thinking about this a little bit like you know even even yesterday it's like the record to me is almost like a very sincere version of like the concept of like de-evolution since we're talking Mm -hmm. about devo you know like when you think of sugar you know there is the very literal sweetness of the poppier aspects of the record and there's also kind of the sinister poison that comes with um consuming something that is so free of nutrients you know what i mean so it's kind of like something that can harm you you know sugar is both um and like with the genres and with this you know live stuff we also i think it is with the record being so short like it is kind of a a point about the culture that we're living in and we and making something that lives right now Mm. making a making a rock a psychedelic rock pop record for the now it is short it is powerful it is fierce it is you know tight because these are the circumstances that we're living in so we kind of used all of those all of that context to make this you know and i hope that the i hope that the the realness of like who we are and how we try to approach music kind of comes through the um you know kind of sweetness I definitely think. does i was gonna say digging into some of the tracks on the record like there's a track like roll the dice which is definitely a commentary on capitalism and you know we mm-hmm. talk a little bit about gamestop situations and crypto <laughs> and everything going on in this world right so talk yeah. about that a little bit because you definitely dig into current affairs and what's going on in life too on the record yeah um our yeah 
Um, as a band, I feel like we're not like a very insular band. Like a lot of our band, like a, a lot of my writing at least is pulling from the people I'm friends with and the things that are happening in the world and like going out and overhearing conversations. And, you know, the three of us all work together and we all discuss things together all the time. And it creates like this sort of outward looking um, art where we have like this community of friends around us in New York that also help us make the art, whether they're acting in our music videos or doing like design work for us or are literally like on stage with us, like helping us like run the shows at times. Our manager, Krista, is now doing our lights. I love it. For instance. <laughs> but it really does feel like there's like a community that's been like uh, like formed around our band and all our friends know each other and it it isn't like the kind of like in your room by yourself writing about your feelings or writing about a breakup or like journalistic in that sort of way it's more of like i feel like this record is sort of like trying to capture almost like a slice of life in a way and i didn't like i try not to like make conclusions or judgments or like um values like added to it so a song like roll the dice is kind of just like trying to get off your chest like what it feels like you have to do to survive and what people around us are talking about in terms of what they feel like their lives are like and just not having a stable relationship to your career or to money or to housing or to healthcare or to all these other things that so many people in this country are experiencing. Because you hear these stories now of these 15-year-olds that like hidden in crypto and they're millionaires. You know, like when I was growing up, you just had to have like yeah, a nine-to-five job. People, yeah. people so don't like, think that their life will be stable economically unless they get extremely lucky or make big gambles or take big risks on things. And like that is not the way, frankly, most people um, get to a place of stability but that's what people feel they have to do definitely it's just like the american dream is so nakedly not happening that you have to put all your money into nfts or crypto to like <laughs> right. i know i've heard recently um it being compared to people talking about like this is like our generation's version of buying property or buying buying yeah. a house which yeah. is so funny because it's you know um a jpeg of an ape or whatever you yeah. know the jokes are never ending with it but what about the people buying like land in the metaverse that's like i just bought a house next to stoop dogs it's in my computer i'll never get uh -huh. to actually yeah. be in it well it was a million dollars i'm like we've what? run out of things to sell and right, we right. need to keep on expanding the market yeah. or else the whole thing is going to fall apart so they're just thinking of literally new ways to create like consumer markets or create places where rich people can move their money around agreed and and baby don't cry one of my other favorite songs <laughs> on the record uh let's talk about that such yeah. a straight ahead like pop rock song great mm -hmm. song what was the the sort of the the thought process behind that song yeah i mean i think uh, that one is another uh, i feel, feel like kind of example of like kind of like we referenced the radio on it a few times and even like npr and it has that radio <laughs> it has that radio rock sound yeah, you does. know that kind of it like starts out on that big chorus so a lot of times we were you know like that's part of the the, the genre is part of the sentiment um but yeah the, i think that song for me is one of the more like it's a very grounding place on the record it's kind of like um in my mind similar to a song like other side where it's like with roll the dice you're going very big and sure. you're very political without 
necessarily using political language but then you have moments like baby don't cry which are sort of referencing being in the back of your parents car listening to the radio and and how that made you feel back then and kind of yearning for uh, yeah yearning for something real you know even like a reference on the song that we make the caretaker um is a, a british artist who makes i can't i always have a hard time describing the caretaker yeah he basically remixes like parlor music from the 20s and creates like these long loops that are like really ambient and reverbed out and they kind of have like this effect of like sounding sh- like like almost like they're like inside like humans like mm. this sort of like cultural memory of like a like a time that you didn't actually live in and they're very like warm and fuzzy and nostalgic sounding. And whenever I play it for people, they're like, oh, my God, this reminds me of The Shining. And I think that's really <laughs> interesting because The Shining is about like, you know, that sort of like false memories in a way. Yeah. yeah so, you know, and, hauntology. Yeah. And just like the I guess that song is sort of like talking about how there's so many things that you constantly are bombarded by that are trying to manipulate you and like all your data being sold all the time and you're being targeted with ads and target even on the subway like every single ad you see on the subway is about living your life less it's like delivery (laughs) there's a dating app ad on the subway where it's like this app is meant to be deleted like make dating as efficient as possible like meet one person and get it out of the way it's like live your life in a way so that you can maximize your productivity and be at home looking at a screen and baby don't cry is kind of about like trying to tune all that stuff out and engaging with things that are made by real people in a way that's meant to be, you know, for lack of a better term, made with love and like sort of like actually nurture you in a way that is personal and creates a real lasting piece meaning in your life. Connection. Yeah. yeah. It is my favorite song on the record, but um, great track and such an optimistic record. And I, lo- I love the record, by the way. Thank you. Um, you're getting ready for a tour. So mm-hmm. we should talk about that. I have the dates here. It's like you're actually leaving, like you said, tomorrow, San Diego, L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Vancouver, Seattle, and Denver. Mm-hmm. So this is exciting. Do yeah. you have a newfound appreciation for touring, uh, yeah. given what we just went through? I mean, and we were, you know, being an indie band, by the way, you guys have been very successful. Still not easy, right? Even yeah. when you're, you know, I think at some point, my only thing at some point when I was like touring was like, I just have to have a roadie, you know, like right. I just do not <laughs> want to set up my own drums. Like I don't ask for much, but I don't want to set up my own drums. Yeah. So at this point in your career, three albums in, you know, and I want to talk about, you even had like a number one single not long ago with uh, the secret he had missed, mm-hmm. the Manic Street Preachers. But what is it like for you guys being on the road now playing festivals? You've even opened up or you've done shows with like Interpol yeah. to back to whoever, like we would talk about that. But what's it like being on the road for you now? Like tell me, talk, walk me through like a daily week for you and what, what goes into it. I mean, I think the thing with the thing with Sunfire Bean is that it is... A, a family business it is a, it like at this point with like the, with me nick krista and olive um and you know and being an indie band you really do um have to think of all of it so you know building the show um the lights the experience the playlist around it um yeah loading in loading out um your own personal rituals you have to be on top of all of it and i think you know, we've we have been really lucky to have this range of experiences, but I do think the pandemic has kind of sort of blown a hole through 
the what we call the middle class of indie yeah. and everything is kind of existing in this in this other state so for us it's it's complicated you know i think we're we do have a different appreciation for the shows and i have a lot of appreciation for the people at the shows because in america if you get covid and and you can't work you know like this is very real gas is seven dollars a gallon there's shows every night every band is going to come back so it makes it even challenging you know it's challenging for people to go to shows now i mean i think a little less now people have let their guard down a little bit you know i feel like you know i don't know ticket sales are not what they should be yet yeah but i feel like people feel fairly comfortable now being in environments i mean not completely yeah it's still obviously very much a thing i mean yeah Uh, i think we'll i think we have to see i think that listeners have changed and i think that as always in the music industry um the people in charge are pointing fingers at who is supposed to pay the bill for keeping musicians alive um which nobody wants to do and musicians are i find often so delightfully desperate to be understood and to communicate their work that they will accept the lowest of terms and don't know how to add we don't know how to advocate for ourselves Mm. because no one just the dynamic has always been so different so i think that there is i think again like with everything i think we're in the midst of a shift and I, i think that um you know i think with streaming i think with live you know, streaming has always been pointing at live, saying you're the ones that are supposed to keep them fed. So why don't you keep them on the road 200 nights out of the year until their backs are breaking and then they can maybe have an apartment? We'll give you a fraction of a penny every time we play yeah. a song. Yeah, and too. I think that now that now that the now that when people get a record, the difference that you, they when they listen to that record, their first thought is not, "I'm going to go to the show." The first thought is, "Oh, I like this record. I'm going to watch Netflix." Yeah, is, and is you there know? any reason why, by the way, you got, because I'm sure along the way you could have signed to a major, but you decided to really do this on your own. Yeah. And do you, is there sort of a thought process behind, you know, the DIY aspect versus, because for sure you could have, I'm sure many major labels would have scooped you up if you wanted that. Yeah. But I feel you probably chose this route yeah. to sort of be independent. Uh, and do you have any thoughts on, you know, the process of like doing it yourself versus maybe at some point you could have signed to a major? Yeah. I'm sure you could have, even. Probably today you could if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, I think kind kind of like kind of the theme of this part of the conversation. You know, the music industry is very sinister. I always have I have said this many times, which people don't understand. More sinister than the modeling industry mm. by far, mm. because obviously there's fucked up things that happen in fashion. But when it comes to how the industry works, it's very clear. You're 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 doing good or you're not. You get the job or you don't. They like how you look or they don't. If they don't, you don't have to take it that seriously because you don't have that much control over how you sure. look. Sure. But with your art, with your music and your soul, when people take that and they fuck with that or you get shelved or they tell you what to do or they don't let you put out work, it's it'll it could kill you. Yeah. You know, if it could really you know, if you, it could really hurt you. And I think because I was in, I had a lot of experiences in super cute, even on a small level, getting into bad deals, bad managers, a lot of men who, um, wanted to take advantage of me. And when it came to doing sunflower bean, I, like when we found Krista, our manager, it was more about trying to find people who were, who I thought to be honest and who believed in the project. And, you know, I always I want 
you know, I loved being an indie band. I love being an indie band. I don't know how what that means now in 2022. I don't know if anyone knows what the future of the record label industry is. Yeah, I was I was going to say you probably appreciate it that much more when you get a call to open up for Beck yeah. or to play Glastonbury or to do Loud Blizzard because you've worked so hard for it yeah. versus someone saying, hey, here's tour support. I'm going to give you a million dollars a year. You're going out on this tour paying for yeah. everything. Right. You, you well, appreciate it more. There's no way you can't, I would yeah. imagine, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if we sign to a major, um, you know, maybe we would just be in um, development hell forever, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, it's... There's no way to know. I mean, there, the, uh, the music industry is changing so much that if we were to have this conversation a year from now, we'd probably all be wrong about our predictions and things will be working in a way that they aren't working now. I mean, it's changing so fast. It's... Well, Nick, I will say the record of only choruses is, is a genius <laughs> idea. So if I had to predict one thing, that's going to be the future for sure. But let's talk about one thing. You actually had a number one hit mm-hmm. uh, recently, which is amazing. So meeting, working with the Maddox Street Preachers, I believe you actually recorded your part here in New York, yeah. both of you guys probably together. Yeah. Um, what was that like? I mean, it's your first number one hit. Yeah. I mean, the Mannix, it's real. I think they're uh, also kind of funny. We're talking about them in this part of the conversation as well, because they're kind of an example of a band who has been able to use like pop and rock music and songwriting in a really intellectual way for their whole career. You know, like that song that we did is, you know, they're Welsh and it's the story of these two welsh painters his brother and sister it's like this it's this really you know uh heady arty um concept and really cool to be a part of that within this like you know ambitious bombastic abba pop song how did they find you by the way were they fans of yeah the, they were kind of fans of the band i think and yeah, championing the band they were fans this, right? of um 22 and blue and that's how we met them they were talking about us in the enemy and then you know and then we they invited us to play with them at cardiff castle and that's a ten, it's a ten thousand capacity show and it sold out in 10 minutes and i was like oh my god these guys are a really big deal <laughs> but you know it, it again they're so huge over there by the so way they're, they're they're you know for people that Legends. love music yeah, yeah. they're like uh, bruce springsteen yeah <laughs> yeah they're huge. over there i don't think they ever found there was one guy that was like missing from the band i yeah. don't think they ever no. found him it's no. tragic by the way uh and you also got asked to play with them at wembley i believe and then I did. all yeah. this happened right? all this happened yeah, yeah i had my ticket i still have my 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 voucher my ticket voucher um my flight credit but we were getting ready to do some music videos and um omicron was announced and everything was being canceled and i was like if i go and do this i'm not going to be able to shoot these videos and i'm going to fuck up everything i really wanted to go it would have been legendary but hopefully hopefully more legendary things will happen for sure are there other (laughs) bands that are fans of the band that you want to work with that you haven't yet i mean like the manic street preachers I'm sure there's a lot of bands that are fans of what you're doing, but there's probably other bands that have reached out to you like, wow, I didn't know that so-and-so reached out to us. That would be a cool collaboration for us to do. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot, I mean, it shows with a lot of like the tours that we've done, you know, that was like a great way of meeting other musicians who have been bigger and, and championed us. But I want to see the Interpol Sunflower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That could be a cool collab. Paul Banks has been on the show. He's a friend of the show. Love so. Paul Banks. Yeah. Love all. Yeah. Love yeah. Interpol. Those are some of the, the best. That was one of the best tours we ever did, I think. And they were so, um, they were so supportive of us. I mean, we did Hollywood Bowl with them. We yeah. did Red Rocks with them. Some really 
um, really like things I will remember for the rest of my life. Oh, that's so funny because those are the two best places I've ever played in my life. <laughs> and I always say that. So that's, that's awesome. How amazing yeah. are those venues? So great. Yeah. Do you ever think, was there ever a thought in your head of maybe moving to LA? Because when you think about the New York scene, we had uh, Cassandra Jenkins on the show not long mm -hmm. ago, obviously Interpol, the yeah, 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 strokes over the years. But there's not a huge, you know, especially rock movement in New York now, an indie rock. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there is in Brooklyn and I, I'm just not that aware of like, a monumentous movement for towards yeah. rock music but did you ever think it was really hard to make it out of new york versus like now people are moving to nashville and here and there but was la ever in the cards for you to move out there and try well, it? you were always like just you're a new yorker is long island you know yeah so. there's a really thriving underground electronic music scene in new york right now and in terms of rock there are a few bands um but it's not the way it was when we were in high school and we were gigging and there was like this really vibrant like um, underground rock scene like happening in um, Williamsburg like we talked about before on Kent Avenue. There was a movement really. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. just a big community and there was a lot of interest in it. There was a lot of people coming. I mean it's part of the reason why Brooklyn and Williamsburg has been so thoroughly gentrified is because of all the art spaces that were over there at that time. Yeah. And um, as, in terms of like the more professional music industry, like in terms of like songwriting and producers and all that stuff, that is mostly based in L.A. and Nashville. And we've been in here in New York trying to um, get more um, like community around that sort of things and writing with other people. Writing with other people wasn't as much a thing when our band was first starting. It was considered like really uncool. Like, you know, there was like this like ethics thing about like we're a band and we're songwriters. We're going to write all our own stuff. We're going to be in charge of all this, uh, like all our own, you know, music. But um, yeah, we've tried to like work. Um, well, you did on this record with right? other artists. Yeah, yeah, and we have. We did on this record yeah. work with other artists and write with other people on not, a bunch of stuff much. but not not too not, much not as much as i not think not as much as it would have been as the industry would like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know what i mean as a lot of people have you know songs with 50 people on them and when you, when you think about our record it's extremely quaint um and a lot of that was determined by the pandemic yes. but yeah we we want to spend a lot more time in LA you know i think that we liked being here kind of waving waving the flag waiting for some other bands to come along and i do think they are and i think you know, it's time for us to to broaden those horizons a little bit. Your ultimate tour would be who? If you could tour with anyone right now. You know. Don't say we, Diva. Well, we've, we've done a lot of touring with um, older legacy artists. And that's really fun. And that's amazing. And it's really magical to get to go on stage and play before the Pixies or Beck or Interpol or the Strokes or whoever. I mean, it's. You know, it's it's always what people ask us about. But I would love to do a tour where it's like us and like maybe like two or three other bands that are around our age and just like have a really great time going around America and doing like these almost like mini festival shows. Yeah. So yeah. Who, which bands are you kind of when you talk? I mean, about it might happen. So I, I might have to keep that secret <laughs> yeah. for now. So. I do think, you know, um, it's interesting the even like. MGK, Travis Barker, Willow Smith, like the way that I think rock, um, young blood, young blood. Yeah. Like it has it, the visual reference is so accepted. And then I think that makes the musical reference more accepted. I think there has been this, um, sort of turn towards like towards pop punk, um, which, 
does help all rock artists in general. I think there's more gateway artists for people to get into more rock music. I think that a lot of the 12 and 13 year olds who love uh, Youngblood will definitely get into more music through him. And I think that's an amazing thing. And that's really the point. That's the point of, of, of doing of like, I don't know, being the, being the, being a songwriter or the vessel for songs. It's like to touch people and bring them into more music and bring them into different music and not just the music that is pumped, you know, in your ears at H&M that is supposed to psychologically keep you buying stuff, you know, <laughs> that's which is a lot of, of, you know, a lot of what is given to people and what people are, are, are forced to accept. Definitely. Well, May 6th, the record came out, mm-hmm. Head Full of Sugar. The tour's exciting. You're leaving tomorrow. Yep. I hope I get to catch you because I feel like I'm just missing you in L.A. Yeah. Um, but either way, we'll definitely hang out in L.A. I'm so happy to see you. What else do we need to plug? There's so much to plug. The tour, the record. The tour, the record. The website, follow the website. Sunflower Bean on Instagram. Yes. What else? TikTok. Personal, we, TikTok. Do, we do have you a do TikTok. TikTok. Okay. We, uh, we, uh, this is going to sound crazy because of, of how much uh tiktok like artists are talking about how crazy tiktok is and even how we talked at it but we actually have a lot of fun on our tiktok we just like just be really stupid and silly and it doesn't have that pressure of it doesn't have the instagram pressure of like being your outward portfolio to the universe you know it's just like it's interesting though there was an article i was going to bring this up that halsey was saying that you know the label wouldn't release her music Mm -hmm. unless it went viral first on tiktok i mean do you have any feelings of is TikTok killing music? In a I way? think that there's a major misunderstanding of like what TikTok is and its relationship to music. You can't really get on there and promote yourself. It's not what the app is geared towards. Like if your song goes viral, it's very rarely the artist themselves making the song go viral. Yeah. It's the user generated content that makes the song go viral. And it has to and be a trend. It has to be a trend. And when we're on TikTok, it's more just a way to post and have fun and sort of interact with communities. It reminds me a little bit more of Reddit than it even does of Instagram. Interesting. Because there are certain hashtags where people who are interested in this very specific thing, like make videos and make... um Um, You know, just like stuff related to like these very niche things that they're interested in. So, for instance, when we go on TikTok, our algorithm and our feed is geared towards people who are home producers or guitarists or songwriters or involved in touring. And it's um, just kind of more for fun and more for connecting with people. I feel like I've like made friends on TikTok in a way that I haven't since like. I, yeah, I was I've on Tumblr on or something. <laughs> it's really cool. And like it's it's you can't really just get on there and like make your song go viral or promote it in any way. Really, I mean, you there are try. a few things that have happened. Like people have had viral moments on there, but for the most part, the way to make your song go viral on TikTok, there is no way. People have to do it. People yeah. have to like it. Yeah, it's so fascinating, right? It's a convers- that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, it honestly is. But such a great. I'm so happy for your success. Obviously, three records in. Head full of sugar. Pick it up, download it, go to all the shows, and um, yeah, really. Ha- I know how hard you worked on it. So, and I know how hard you worked on the band. So, I- I'm so happy that you're having the success you're having. So, thanks for coming on. Great no, to see you. you. Thanks, and, Scott. And uh, until next time. Of course. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Awesome. This is Lips LA. Well, that was amazing. It's so great to do these in person. 
I love Sunflower Bean. Great people. Julia, Nick, great people. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, please make sure you give the show a great review on social media and a great review on iTunes. It's very helpful to us. It's the way the show gets out. So follow us, Lip Service Pod on Instagram and also on personal Instagram for updates on who's coming next. We have a great lineup coming for you soon. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Speak to you all soon. And thanks for tuning in.